Praise the Lord. Awesome. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. I started sharing last night from these passages, and I'm just going to go through and summarize just real quickly, and then we're going to move on tonight. But I focused on Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It says, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.14 says this same thing. It says, In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. And so I started sharing that redemption, it's technically, according to the Thayer's Dictionary, redemption is the releasing effect and liberation that comes, or that's procured through the payment of a ransom. That's the technical definition. But basically, according to Scripture here, redemption is just the forgiveness of your sins. And I started making an emphasis that this is putting it in the past tense. We have. It's already done. We aren't in the process of being redeemed in the sense of our spirit. In verse 14, it talks about that we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And I made a distinction that your spirit is already redeemed. It's already accomplished. In the spirit, you're already forgiven. You are as perfect and pure as you will ever be. But we are still waiting for the redemption of our physical bodies. These bodies have to be changed and our soul has to be changed. And so that's what we talked about last night and started talking about how that in the Spirit you're already complete. Then this morning we went over to Hebrews chapter 9 and let me just read a couple of verses here in verse 12. It says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Notice that this was only done one time, and there are four times in Hebrews chapter 9 that it talks about that Jesus only one time purchased forgiveness of sins. It's not something that is an ongoing process. I could go back and re-preach what I taught this morning because this is just totally contrary to the way that most people envision the forgiveness of sins. They think that forgiveness of sins was only up until the time you got born again, that your sins in the past were forgiven, and then every time you commit a sin, you have to get that sin under the blood and get it confessed. And if you don't, then you could die and go to hell, even though you've served God for 20 years. If you have an unconfessed sin in your life, you would die and go to hell. This says that He bought eternal Redemption, according to Ephesians 1, 7, redemption is the forgiveness of sins. He bought eternal redemption of sins, not momentary redemption of sin until the time that you sin again and then you got to get that back under the blood. We also use verse 15 where it talks about eternal inheritance, not momentary inheritance until the next time you sin. We talked about Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, that Jesus so obliterated sin that we should have no more conscience of sin. Totally contrary to what most people believe. Most people, their entire life revolves around, oh God, I'm so sorry, please forgive me for this. If you were to extract the time that most people spend confessing sin and repenting of sin and telling God about how sorry they are from their sin, if you were to extract that from the average person's prayer life, most people wouldn't have anything left. It's all about repenting over sin or asking for something. 
But if you were to spit, just take the time that people really are in communion with God, thanking Him for what He's done, praising Him, fellowshipping with God, that's not a large part of most people's prayer. Most people's prayer life revolves around, Oh God, forgive me of this, or Oh God, give me this. That's what prayer is to most people. And that is a sorry prayer life. Adam and Eve didn't have any sins to ask forgiveness for. They didn't have anything to believe in. They didn't have to believe for clothes. They didn't have to believe for food. They didn't have to believe for houses, for cars. They didn't have anybody to intercede for and demons to cast out and things to bind and revival to ask for. And yet they were able to fellowship with God every day in the cool of the day, just praising Him for how good He was. They had relationship with God. That's what it's all about. And yet most people, it's not about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. It's all about, oh God, I'm so sorry. We have a sin consciousness, which the Bible says, Hebrews 10, 2, there should be no more conscience of sin. Verse 10, Hebrews 10, 10 says that through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, we have been sanctified. The word sanctified means made holy once for all. Then verse 14, Hebrews 10, 14 says, Those that have been sanctified have also been perfected forever. And some people say, can't be. I'm not perfect. That's because you're looking on the outside. You're looking in your emotion realm. But in the spirit, we're a brand new person. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23 says, That you have come to the church and the general assembly of the firstborn and to the spirits of just men who have been made perfect. This perfection that he's talking about in Hebrews 10, 14 is in your spirit. In your spirit, you're perfect and complete. You are forgiven, redeemed of all sins, not just up until you got born again and then every time you transgress, you got to get born again again. You were forgiven of all sins, past, present, and even future tense. You have eternal redemption. If you missed any of what I taught, I don't know how to make you believe this because I tell you, this is so far off the charts for most people. There's probably some people sitting here thinking, this is heresy. I know this guy's of the devil. This is, this is not right. Well, it's not what's being taught primarily, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. I've, nearly, nearly everything I've said up to this point, I've quoted scripture to you. There's been very little interpretation or application. It just says you are eternally redeemed. You have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. It's not something that you're trying to get or that you have to procure over and over. It is already a done deal. Eternal redemption, eternal inheritance, no more conscience of sin. You've been sanctified and perfected forever. If words mean anything, if the Bible is true, then I tell you, you ought to... Bow the knee and do what Romans 3, 4 says. Let God be true and every man a liar. One of the reasons that we aren't having better results is because we have traditions and doctrines of man that have made the word of none effect. I said this this morning, but most people don't let the word of God get in the way of what they believe. I believe this because this is what my church has taught. This is what they've said. This is what's gone on for centuries. And this is what I believe. Forget what the word says. Man, the Word says that there is a difference. Jesus changed things. And we went into great detail on that this morning. You know, tonight I want to turn over to Isaiah chapter 52. And I just want to amplify on these same things that I was saying. Talking about the redemption. How the blood of Jesus dealt with sin. And when you say things like this... People will sit there and say, so you're making light of sin. You're saying it doesn't matter if we go live in sin. That's not what I'm saying at all. 
And if I had more time, I could probably convince you of this better than what I'm going to be able to do tonight. But I am not making light of sin. I hate sin. I live a holier life than most of you in here. My standard of holiness is much stricter than most people's. I am not saying these things because, man, this just frees us to go live in sin. You can look at my life. You can look at the way that I'm living and interpret what I'm saying. This is what the Apostle Paul said many times. You know, when he would preach on grace. So what am I saying? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, God forbid. And Paul went on to say that, you know what? I I pray in tongues more than y'all. I am living a holy life. I am a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Man, I was a legalist of the legalist. Paul did not preach grace so that it can encourage sin. He said just the opposite. The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Titus chapter 2 verse 12. My life and my standard of living, I believe, is a testimony that I am not encouraging sin. And so when I'm saying these things about that Jesus has eternally forgiven me, that my sins are forgiven... You can sit there and criticize me. I can't keep you from doing it, but I am not encouraging sin. What I'm doing, I'm not making light of sin. I hate sin more than most people in this room. I have a greater hatred for it. I see what it's done in people's lives. Man, I am grief-stricken in some ways and grieved over the way that our nation is going and the sins and things that happen. I am not making light of sin. But what I have done, I believe that I have valued the blood and the atonement of Jesus more than what most people do. I believe that the atonement of Jesus had a saving effect much greater than what the typical person does. And actually, I believe that when a person says, come to Jesus and get born again and get your sins forgiven, and then tomorrow the person comes back and says, well, I've lost my joy. How come I don't have the same joy that I had yesterday when I first prayed and got saved? You know, I was talking to Richard and his wife, Dee Dee, tonight, and they came down last night, and they prayed. They, I believe that they had already been seeking the Lord and born again, but they made it official. This was the first time they made it public, and they said, today's been wonderful. They just feel great, and great things are happening. It was wonderful. You know what? When a lot of people get saved... They are so excited and they just, they feel like their sins are forgiven. Everything's wonderful. And then they go to church. (laughs) And they're told that unless you study the Bible, unless you pray an hour a day, unless you start doing this, unless you do this, unless you teach a Sunday school class, unless you start doing this, this, and this, God won't. And they're confused. Oh, I thought my sins were forgiven. I thought God loved me. Oh, yeah, that was why you were a sinner. But now that you're a saint... You had better start living holy and man, you just start dumping on them and all of a sudden people start losing some of their joy. And it's not because God changed. It's not because God shut off the joy. It's because you quit understanding that you were forgiven of all sins and you get back under a sin consciousness and feeling like I've got to live up to a standard and oh God, am I good enough? And the answer is no, you aren't good enough. You'll never be good enough. There's not a person in here that deserves the goodness of God. We all have to humble ourselves and receive it as a gift. And so you've got to understand, I am not making light of sin, but I'm saying that Jesus' sacrifice was so much greater than our sins that they aren't even worthy to be compared. The way that the church has emphasized that you've got to 
get every sin confessed and you've got to constantly do this or God won't answer your prayer. It's an Old Testament mentality when they were only using the blood of animals that were symbolic and couldn't take away man's sins. We have that same mindset. Most of us haven't made a clear distinction between the way things were done under the Old Covenant and the way they're done under the New Covenant. I'm going to talk about this tomorrow because we've also been redeemed from the law, redeemed from the Old Testament. We're going to talk about our redemption from the Old Testament. But when people are sitting there and they just feel like every time they sin, it's a brand new transgression. It's something they got to get under the blood that God is displeased. God can't use a dirty vessel. God can't fellowship with a dirty vessel. I want to let you know that there, God hadn't got any other kind of vessels to fellowship with. Amen. <laughs> We've all sinned and come short. Now in your spirit you're clean. You're sanctified and perfected forever. But when you get this mindset that every time you sin, it's a new transgression and you're in and out of fellowship and God's pleased with you and now He's displeased with you and God will use you now and He won't use you now because you got some sin in your life. You're living like an Old Testament saint, not taking, not taking advantage of the new covenant that we've got that is so far superior. So what I want to do tonight is just emphasize and try and amplify the atonement that Jesus made. If we could really see what Jesus has done for us, you would see that your sin in comparison to the payment that is made for your sin is nothing. It is not even worthy to be mentioned. Jesus' love for you, His atonement for you is so much greater than your failure for Him. We need to be focused on what Jesus has done for us. So let's look at some of these scriptures in Isaiah chapter 52. If I had time, actually from chapter 40... All the way through, this is basically prophetic scriptures about the new covenant. It talks about the messenger that comes and prepares the way, John the Baptist, and it's spoken like it's already happened. But yet we know from history that these were still hundreds of years off in the future. Right here in Isaiah chapter 52, this is written as if it's already happened. And yet it's prophesying what you and I live in, the day that you and I live in. At this time, Isaiah was actually prophesying the doom and the destruction of Jerusalem. They were not under the blessing of God. They had broken the old covenant and there had to be a new covenant given. And so at the time this was written, these things weren't true. But they were spoken as if it was already happening, as if it was already true. It was prophecy about the Messiah and the atonement that Jesus would make. And so you've got to read it with that mindset. Look at this in Isaiah chapter 52 and um, verse, let's start with verse 9. It says, Break forth into joy, sing together ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted His people. At that time, it wasn't true that He had comforted them. They were coming under the judgment of God, but this was prophesying the day that would come, and He was speaking as if these things had already happened. He says, For the Lord hath comforted His people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. Now again, the word redemption means the forgiveness of sins, the liberating, releasing effect of payment of a ransom. This hadn't happened yet, but it was prophesying. And then chapter 53 is very descriptive about what Jesus did. Many of these verses from Isaiah 53 were quoted and applied directly to Jesus. So this is talking about the redemption 
that you and I now have complete the forgiveness of our sins, eternal redemption, eternal inheritance, one sacrifice for sins forever. And this is what this is prophesying about. In verse 10, it says, The Lord hath made bare his holy arm to the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence. Touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Again, this is kind of a subtle reference, but here he is talking about your redemption has come. The Lord has already comforted you. You're forgiven. And then in the midst of talking about it's already done, he says, now be clean, ye that bear the vessels of the Lord. You know what? If you truly understand grace, grace doesn't encourage sin. If you understand how much God loves you, man, it makes you motivated to live holier than you've ever lived before. People who are under legalistic rules and you've got to do this for God to do this, you will give the minimum requirement. How much do I have to do? But if you understand how much God loves you and the great salvation and the extent that Jesus paid, the price that He paid for your redemption, once you understand that, love will compel you to live holier accidentally then legalism will ever cause you to live on purpose. Amen. Love is a greater motivation. So that's what this is referring to. In verse 12 it says, For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your re-reward. In other words, this is talking about you won't flee in terror, but man, you will be under the blessing of God. You don't have to sneak out by night. You are the head and not the tail. In verse 13 it says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled, and he shall be very high. This is talking about Jesus. And remember that men are the ones that put the chapter divisions in here, chapter 52, 53, etc. This doesn't quit and go on to a brand new thought in chapter 53. This is talking about Jesus, his servant, is going to be exalted and deal prudently. In verse 14, it says, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. In other words, in the same way that you, talking to the Israelites, and this was symbolic of God's people, now the Israelites are not limited to Jews, but we are the people of God. All of those who put faith in the Lord. Paul said this in a number of places, that he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly in the circumcision of the flesh, but circumcision is a matter of the heart. A true Jew is a person who has relationship with God and puts faith in Him. We are now the people of God. This doesn't diminish or cancel out some physical promises to the Israelites. I'm not saying that they are forsaken, but I'm saying that the church is now God's people. The the, uh, whole kingdom of God revolves around His people. So when it's talking here about that many were astonished at thee, and He's talking to the Jewish nation, this applies to all of us. All of us have been shamed. We've been embarrassed. We've had terrible things happen. And Jesus came and took our shame and took our judgment, and took all of the things that we suffered. In the same way that we suffered, Jesus suffered for us, except it was multiplied billions and billions of times over by every person that's ever lived on the face of this earth. So that's what he's saying in verse 14. As many were astonished at thee, well, likewise, his visage was marred more than any man. The word visage is an old English word that means face, appearance. 
You know what this is saying? Now think about this. I'm trying to amplify the price that Jesus paid for your sins to show that the sacrifice is greater than the need. This is saying that Jesus, the messenger, his face was marred more than any man that has ever lived on this earth. Most people don't think about this. They don't, they don't let words paint a picture. They don't meditate on what the Scripture says. They just read over stuff like this, and most people don't even know what the word visage means. They just read over it and forget it. This is saying that Jesus' face was more, more marred than any person that has ever lived on this earth. I don't know if you've ever seen some people that have had you know, something happen to their face. I remember a man in Kansas City who came to me and he had a towel over his face. And he was talking to me and he was trying to get me to pray for him. And I tried to understand and I couldn't understand him. And finally I just told him, I said, you're going to have to take the towel away for me to understand. And he took the towel away and he had had cancer and his face was gone. His nose was gone. His sinuses were gone. It was just raw flesh and blood and liquid coming out of his face. His lips were gone. You could see up inside of him. It was terrible. It was grody looking. Jesus looked worse than that, is what this verse says. I had in that same meeting a man come, a doctor, who had a cancer that grew out of his eye, and his eyeball was gone, and this side of his face was gone, and all this cancer was there. This guy came up, and I tell you, it was hard to look at him. Jesus looked worse than that. See, when people think about what the Scripture says about Jesus... They think about the beating of the Romans gave him and things like this, and they, they try and imagine that. You know, uh, Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, when people saw that, they thought that this was over the top, that it was excessive, and yet Mel Gibson himself said that, that he couldn't portray Jesus the way that the Scripture really portrayed him, or it would have been triple X-rated, and he couldn't have gotten anybody to come see it. He had to tone it down. What that, what that show portrayed, the beating of Jesus, it wasn't even close. All that did was show the physical whipping of the Jews. The, what they did, the Romans and the Jews, what they did to Him. But it didn't show this. You know the reason I believe that it says His face was all marred? It wasn't just because of the physical beating, but the Scripture says He became sin for us who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 that we might be made the righteousness of God. He didn't just take physical suffering. He took sin. Have you ever seen what sin does to a person? Have you ever seen people who've been alcoholic, drug addicts, the way that they look, the way that sin can affect a person's physical looks? And then it says He took our sickness into His own body on the tree, our sins. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He took our sins into His own body on the tree, by whose stripes we were healed. Jesus didn't just suffer physical beating. He didn't just suffer the effect of sin and all of the effects that that could have on you, but Jesus had every sickness, every disease that has ever hit the human race come into His physical body in just a matter of hours. Every tumor, every deformity, every birth defect, 
If you've ever seen people with swelled heads, if you've ever seen cancers, if you've ever seen any of these things, all of this stuff entered into the body of Jesus. And the rest of this verse says not only was his face, his visage marred more than any man, it says, and his form more than the sons of man. That's talking about his bodily shape. Jesus was marred in his body so that he looked worse than a man. He, he didn't even look human is what this is saying. If you look at it in some other translations, he didn't look human. Now, Mel Gibson's show where they showed this physical beating, it was gross. It was harsh, the things that happened, but it still looked like a human being hanging on the cross. Did you know that the true crucifixion of Jesus was a million times worse? His face was marred more than any person's face on the face of this earth has ever been marred. His body was so beaten, not only with the stripes, but with the sicknesses, the disease, the tumors, the terrible things that have hit the human race. Everything that God has ever healed was placed upon Jesus. That's the reason that we can be healed is because by His stripes we were healed. By those sicknesses that He took, we were healed. So every sickness, elephantitis, every type of weird thing that has ever happened, every perversion that the devil has ever done came into the body of Jesus so that hanging on the cross, he didn't even look human. He didn't look like a person. Mel Gibson didn't even come close to describing that, to illustrating that. There were people that saw that movie and thought, oh, this was just terrible and, and you know, it was over the top. Oh, it wasn't even close. It wasn't even close. It didn't even come close. And besides, everything I've talked about so far is only physical. The worst part of the crucifixion wasn't the physical suffering, the marring of his face, his body being deformed and contorted and all of these things. The worst part of the whole thing was that here was pure, sinless, perfect God and he became sin. He didn't take just a little bit of sin, just a taste of sin so that he could say he bore it. He became a homosexual. He became a murderer, a rapist, a liar, a thief, a crook. Every rotten thing. He didn't just take it in principle. He literally had that sin and that shame. Just think about yourself. All of the times that you've sinned, and the times that you've felt like such a heel when you finally came to a realization of how you've hurt other people, how you've destroyed your home, how you've done this, the shame that you've felt, all of the condemnation, the guilt, the confusion that you've felt multiplied by every person that has ever lived on the face of the earth, all of that sin, all of that shame, all of that hopelessness came upon Jesus. Some people may think that I'm magnifying and making more out of this than what it is, but I'm not. In Psalms chapter 22, again, it's a prophetic psalm, and the Lord there says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoted those exact words when He was on the cross, and the next verse tells you the answer. The next verse says, But you are holy, O God, that inhabits the praises of Israel. You know why God forsook Jesus? Because Jesus became sin. Jesus didn't just taste it in principle. He became sin. And His holy Father 
had to turn away from him because he was so vile. He was so ungodly. He became sin. He didn't just bear it. He became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And Jesus bore sin in his emotions. And there's no way to depict that. You can't show that in a picture. I tell you, the passion of the Christ, again, I'm not against that show. I think Mel Gibson praised God that somebody made an attempt and that somebody took the flack and that went to the effort. I'm not criticizing him, but I'm saying that it didn't do justice to the crucifixion of Jesus. It was infinitely worse, much, much worse. All that did was show things in the physical realm, but it can't reveal what really went on in the spirit. That's what these verses do. You know, when I was actually watching that show, I'd had some friends of mine talk about how that this was just such an epiphany for them, that they were just transformed. It was so awesome. So I went to that show expecting to have a major, uh, you know, impact, a major experience with the Lord. And as I watched it, again, I'm not critical of the show because I can't imagine how you could do it more graphic and do it any better than what Mel Gibson did. But I was disappointed. I was looking at the crucifixion and people around me, you could hear them weeping and things happening. And I was looking at this and thinking, man, this isn't even close. It's not even close to being... The point that I'm getting is that, you know, through the Scriptures... If you will allow the Holy Spirit to enlighten your imagination and to speak to you, you can see what Jesus paid at the crucifixion through the Spirit. You can see with your heart better than you can see with your eyes. And as I was looking at that, the Lord just spoke to me and says, if you would have been one of Jesus' disciples and if you would have been present at the crucifixion and would have seen His suffering and have seen His face become so marred, seen His body become so marred that He didn't even look human, it wouldn't have made as big an impact on you as my Holy Spirit has made on you as you've meditated on Scripture. Because they didn't know that He could have called 10,000 angels. They didn't understand how this fit into the plan of God. To them, it looked like failure. It looked like Jesus had been defeated. The Romans won. The Jews won. They didn't understand these things. With the understanding that we now have through Scripture and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, you can actually see things better through the Spirit than you can see them with your eyes. You can know things by the Spirit better than you can know them through looking at something in a movie. And the Lord showed me that, you know what, if I have a greater, and I'm not saying this in any way to pat myself on the back. I'm back. I'm praising God for the Holy Spirit and the day we live in and the tremendous things of the revelation. But I have a greater revelation of the crucifixion than the disciples who saw it happen. It is better to live in the day we live with the Word and the Holy Spirit in likeness than it would have been if you would have been one of Jesus' disciples. We have a greater understanding. They didn't understand the things that the Scripture reveals to us. Well, we are so blessed. We are so blessed. So this is what these verses are doing, is painting a picture about what Jesus paid. His face was so marred more than any person. His body, His form was more than the sons of man. He didn't even look human. In verse 15... It says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. 
For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. And then chapter 53, verse 1. Remember, this isn't a new thought. It's not a continuation of something else. This is saying the same thing. This is just for our reference. But he goes on to say, after these, saying these wonderful things about how God would become a man and suffer and allow... I mean, he could have wiped this planet off. He could have killed all of us and he wouldn't have been any the worse off. He had nothing to lose. But because of his great love for us, he allowed these things to be done to us so that he could pay for our sins. This is the price that was paid. And it says, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? It's like Isaiah was prophesying these things, and all of a sudden he was just overwhelmed, saying, Who could believe this? Who could believe that God would much less become a man and walk down here on the earth for 30-something years as a physical human being? But beyond that, who could believe that God would allow His own creation to mutilate Him and to beat Him and to crucify Him, that He would give His life. Did you know every other religion of the world, I believe that religion is inspired by the devil. There's a true difference between Christianity and religion. There's Christian religion that is inspired by the devil. But every other religion of the world... Not a single religion even comes close to the concept that Christianity presents that we have a Savior, that God became a man and came down here and suffered our beating so that we wouldn't have to suffer. No other religion has anything like this. Every other religion has a concept that there's a God and that there is a punishment in eternity after this life, but basically they preach that you have to earn your salvation. You have to be holy. You have to do these things in order to have God accept you. There is no other religion that has a Savior. It just shows that who could believe this? Even the devil never could dream this up. The devil couldn't even wrap his brain around this. It is just... So incredible to even think that God could become a man, much less would become a man. Well, we take these things for granted. But what a great salvation we have that God Almighty became a man and allowed these things to happen to Him. When you think about what this means, everything that was involved, you know what? It just shrinks our sins, our failures down to such a small thing compared to the huge price the huge effort that Jesus went to to redeem us. Man, for you to sit there and say, oh, I know I'm saved, but I've sinned since then and I'm not sure that God could use me. Boy, you have magnified sin and diminished the atonement of Jesus. You've diluted it. Man, we need to start going back and focusing on what Jesus has done and get so excited about it that, man... It just overwhelms. It just overflows. It floods all of our failures and stuff. And, and it will produce faith on the inside of you. So in verse 2 it says, Isaiah 53, 2, it says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. This is talking about Jesus. He has no form nor comeliness. The word comeliness means beauty. Did you know Jesus wasn't a beautiful person? He was just common looking. I believe he was average. 
You know, there are some people, most of them, that we put these people into movies and make movie stars out of them, put them on the, you know, the magazine covers, these perfect bodies, these perfect looking people. I don't know where they get these people from. (laughs) But most of us aren't perfect. Some of us just, you know, have things. Amen. You lose your hair, you get the Chester drawers disease. That's where your chest is done dropped down into your drawers. Amen. I mean, you know, things just happen to us. And some of us are just plumb ugly. You know, if most of us would have been God, and if you had decided to become a man, you wouldn't have become an ordinary man that has no form or comeliness. You know, if I would have been God and I would have decided to become a man, I would have been the greatest specimen of manhood that ever walked on the face of this earth. I'd have made Arnold Schwarzenegger look pitiful in comparison, amen. I'd have been the biggest, the strongest, the... You know, the greatest man, I would have been beautiful. And yet God came as just an ordinary. There was no beauty in him. There was nothing desirable about Jesus' body. It was sinless. It was perfect. But it wasn't beautiful. He wasn't the biggest. He wasn't the strongest. You know, just stop and think about it. Here's God Almighty who forever had been worshipped by the angels in heaven and there was constant praise in heaven and then he leaves all of that and comes down here into the a body of a human being and not a special body, just a normal body. He walks by the very creations that he made and people just ignore him. Don't even recognize that this is God standing next to me. Just think about what that would do to you, the fact that you are just ignored, that nobody recognizes who you are. There's no acceptance, no longer any praise, none of this stuff. You're just normal. Outside of the crucifixion and the things that Jesus suffered on the cross, did you know he suffered a lot throughout his entire lifetime just being human, just being confined to one place? When it says in Scripture that the heavens, even the heavens of the heavens can't contain you. That's what Solomon said when he dedicated the temple. If the heavens can't contain you, how can this building that I made contain you? The heavens of the heavens aren't big enough to hold God. He's bigger than what he built. And yet he limited himself to a physical human body. He got tired. He had to walk to go places, whereas before he was everywhere. There's no way that we with our finite minds can wrap our brain around what Jesus gave up and how he sacrificed to come to this earth. The crucifixion, as terrible as that was in all of its deal, it was just a portion of what Jesus gave up because of his love for you. And yet basically when people sit there and say, oh, I believe you've got to be saved, but you've also got to live holy to earn this. You know what you're doing? You, it shows that you don't have a clue what Jesus paid, to think that you could add to it, to think that your holiness and your goodness and your fasting and prayer can somehow or another provide something that Jesus' atonement didn't provide, it shows how far removed from understanding we are about what Jesus has done. 
Well, this is amazing stuff. There's no form. There's no comeliness. There's nothing in him that when we see him, we would desire him. None of us would have wanted to look like Jesus. There wasn't anything special about him. In verse 3, it says, He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Jesus was acquainted with grief, but this wasn't grief because he had done something wrong. It wasn't grief because of his mistakes and failures. He took our sins. He felt our infirmity. He was grieved and sorrowful because he saw his creation suffering, not because of his own suffering. The Lord could have just... He could have turned away from mankind. He could have wiped us out and he still would have been God and he could have started over and have done something better. You know what? The Lord didn't come down here because he needed to be atoned for. He did this all for us. He bore our sorrows and carried our griefs. And you know, this is where I really get in trouble with a lot of people. Because if you understand what Jesus paid, you understand that there isn't a single thing that a person in here could suffer. There is nothing that could happen to you that Jesus didn't anticipate and pay for it and solve that. He bore all griefs, all sorrow, all sickness, all disease, all sin. Everything's done. And because I see this, then when a person comes up to me and says, Oh, I was abused when I was a child. Could you just please pray that God would do something? And they act so pitiful and they, they want something special. They need something special. I, I talked to a person just recently that says, you don't understand. You weren't sexually abused. You don't understand that we have special needs and that you've got to present things differently and it's not enough to just pray and believe God and receive deliverance and healing of this. We have to have special treatment. You never get over it. You know when a person says something to me, what they're saying is that Jesus might be enough for people that haven't had big problems. But if you've had a big problem, Jesus didn't do enough. It's not enough. Man, I think it's just the opposite. A person who's sitting there saying, I've got special needs. You don't understand. I've had abuses. I've had things that you haven't had. What the problem is, you haven't seen that Jesus bore your griefs and carried your sorrows. What you're doing is esteeming your problem bigger than God. I'm saying God paid a price that was bigger than anything that's ever happened to you and you can be so totally cleansed and forgiven of this that it is like it has never happened to you. You can be totally redeemed. I had a woman in Lima, Ohio one time. She was about 25, 26 years old and when she was a child... She was abused by her grandfather, sexually abused every day from the time she was about four years old until she was 14. He sexually abused her every single day and she didn't say anything because uh, he told her not to and that uh, she'd be in trouble and stuff. And so anyway, she put up with this for about 10 years and then when she was 14, she got born again. And when she got born again... Man, it was like God set her free. God cleansed her. She was just totally forgiven and she was free and she told her parents what had happened. And of course, they just blew up. They kicked the grandfather out of the house. They disowned him, didn't have anything to do with him. And because 
this had happened, they just expected her to be devastated, but she'd been freed. She was saved. And they said, you're in denial. They tried to get her to go to counseling. And because she wouldn't have problems, they kicked her out of the house when she was 15 because she was in denial and she didn't hate her grandfather and she wouldn't deal with all these things. And when I was preaching along these lines, this girl came up to me just crying, saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, because most people don't believe that Jesus can totally redeem you and set you free from something like this. She said, Christians were telling me that I've got a limp and have a problem with this the rest of my life, and they just don't understand that I was totally set free. She says, it's as if it never happened to me. Brothers and sisters, that's what's available through Jesus. If you still are bearing scars and you're still struggling because of the things that have happened in your past, it's not because God didn't make an atonement. It's because you haven't understood the degree to which the atonement was made. And you have placed value on those things. You have listened to psycho babble today that tell you that you can't be free and that you have to have these problems. And you are the one that has made that thing bigger than it is. I'm telling you, Jesus' atonement is greater than your problem. And so because of this, I get a lot of criticism. People say, you aren't empathizing with people. Well, you aren't empathizing with what Jesus paid. You aren't recognizing the degree to which it's paid. So what should I do? Should I side with you and make your problem bigger than Jesus? Or should you side with me and make Jesus bigger than your problem? I'm telling you, you can get free of things. You can get to a place where, Father, I don't care what has happened. The price that you paid, the love that you showed to me is so much greater. You know, I have people come, and they, but they've been through a divorce. They've been through terrible things. Bad things have happened. And they say, but you're, you're acting like I should just be normal and I, it shouldn't be bothering me. Well, I'm saying that, you know what? I'm not saying that you don't have problems, but look at it this way. Here's God Almighty, King of Kings, Lord of Lords who loves you enough that he left all of that, came down here to live for 30-something years with all of the limitations of being a human, and then he suffered this and died for you. Think about how much he loves you, and that man or woman who divorced you and left will become nothing in comparison. Am I saying that, you know, you shouldn't care about your mate and if they divorce you or whatever? No, I'm saying you should care, but you need to put things into priorities, into perspective. And compared to God, they're nothing. I don't want anybody in here to hate me. I bet you there's some people very upset by the things that I'm saying because I'm running against religion. And there's, you know, I've had people come up and spit in my face. I've had people kidnap me. I've been kidnapped. I've been threatened to be killed. I've been all kinds of things. And you know, I I don't like people rejecting me. If you hate me and if you're mad at me, I'm not going to feel good because of it. It doesn't make me happy that you hate me. But you know what? Because I understand how much God loves me and because I'm focused on that, even though it's not going to bless me if you criticize me, it's not going to keep me awake either. I just put it into perspective. And you can come up here and spit in my face and say what you want to, but you know what? You're nobody compared to God. God loves me. Who are you? 
The only reason it bothers you so much what somebody else is saying about you is because it doesn't matter to you as much what God has said about you. You're the one that places value on everybody. You could come up and tell me what your husband or wife has said about you, the thing that just crushed you and broke your heart and how it's hurt you, and you could have them come up and say the exact same words to me, and it's not going to affect me the way it affects you. You know why? Because I don't care for your husband or wife the way that you do. (laughs) It's not just that these words automatically produce this. No, it's because of the value you place on that person and their words and their opinion. I'm not saying that you don't respect people and desire to have a relationship, but I'm saying that you should exalt God's opinion about you so much greater that even if your husband or wife comes out against you, in comparison to God, they're nobody. It's nothing. I had a man come up one time at one of my meetings and criticize Jamie over the way she dressed. And you know, Jamie's always dressed modest and she always looks nice. There was nothing wrong. He was religious and she had on a gold ring and she had earrings and makeup on. And that's what he was talking about. It was this religious stuff that you can't wear makeup and do all of this stuff. You know, I just tell people, if your barn needs painting, paint it. Amen. (laughs) And if it needs two coats, give it two coats. I don't think that's what it... Amen. But anyway, he came up and he was criticizing Jamie and he started saying, now you need to straighten your wife out and you need to make her do And he just started into his tirade and I said, whoa. And he looked at me and I said, who died and made you God? And he just looked at me and says, what do you mean? I said, you know what? I don't give a rip what you think about my wife. You're nobody. I don't care what you think. And this guy was just shocked. I can't believe you said that. And I said, fella, you have no right to come into our life and tell us anything. You're nobody. Some people are like, oh, I can't believe you said that. That's exactly the way I felt about it. And you know, because of that, doesn't affect me, didn't hurt us. We don't stay up at night thinking about what you think about us. If you're so worried because somebody's rejected you and somebody hasn't recognized you, and if you are having all of these problems, it's because you don't understand how much God loves you. When you understand that God Almighty loves you, you'll just reach a place to where you want other people to love you because of the blessing it could be to them and how you could minister to them. But you don't need it. You're secure in God's love. Amen. If you're one of these people that your mate has to always be about, and you just are, you're living in a constant state of depression and failure because your mate doesn't love you and respect you. And you know what? You can't praise God with your thumb in your mouth. <laughs> just pull your thumb out of your mouth and grow up. Start recognizing how much God loves you, and then, regardless of what your mate does, you can praise God. Jesus bore your sorrows and carried your griefs. Why are you bearing them? Why are you worrying about this? Because you haven't esteemed what Jesus has done for you. Instead, you're looking at all these other things. Man, that's awesome. In verse 5, it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, not his iniquities. He suffered for you. If he suffered for you, then you aren't. there's no benefit in you suffering. Why in the world would you suffer something that Jesus has already done? In a sense, that's making light of. It's disesteeming, not valuing what Jesus has done. You know what honors God is to say, God, you suffered my depression for me. I'll never be depressed because you were depressed for me. 
I'll never be discouraged because you became discouraged for me. I'm not going to go bear shame and guilt and condemnation because you bore that for me. It doesn't honor God for you to suffer in those ways. Man, this is different than what most people believe. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. It says over in 1 Peter 2.24, By his stripes we were healed. This was prophesying what would happen. Now it's happened. It's already done. You don't have to pray for God to heal you. You're already healed. And he put that healing virtue on the inside of you. And now instead of asking God to give you what he's already given you, Believe that He's given it to you. Take your authority. Stand up and command the power of God to flow. Quit being a beggar and start being a commander. Stand in your authority and recognize that it's a done deal. In verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you're sitting there bearing condemnation and feeling so ungodly and, oh God, how could you ever use me? then you haven't, in your heart, seen all of your iniquity being placed on Jesus. You believe that you're still bearing it. You are approaching God in your sins instead of in your spirit. God is a spirit and you have to worship Him in spirit and in truth. You have to come before Him in the part of you that has been sanctified and perfected forever, eternal redemption. All of your iniquities placed on Him. If you're feeling ungodly and unworthy, it's because you aren't worshiping God in spirit and in truth. You haven't understood the provision that Jesus made. All of your sins have been forgiven. Man, this is awesome. Verse 7, He was oppressed, He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so He opened not His mouth. If Jesus would have opened his mouth, he was the creator. He spoke the worlds into existence and it didn't take a hundred billion years to do it. He spoke it and boom, it came to pass. Did you know that granite has an isotope in it, a radioactive isotope like where we live? I just got our house tested for radon and granite, decomposed granite, lets off radiation because in granite there is an isotope that has a half-life of one millionth of a second. Which means that granite had to be formed in less than one millionth of a second for those isotopes to be trapped in there. If it would have formed over eons and billions of years, all of the radioactiveness would have gone out of it. But granite has these isotopes in there and only as they weather and break down do these things come out Anyway, that's my little deal on evolution. How did I get that out of this? Oh, it's because (laughs) he opened not his mouth. He's the one that created this world and the universe and all Jesus would have had to have said is die or boo or anything. And I guarantee you the power of God would have been released. He had to keep his mouth shut in order for, to allow his creation to do what they wanted to do. Man, if he would have exerted himself in the smallest way at all, he could have come out of that. What great love he had for us that he just kept his mouth shut. He didn't defend himself. Even Pilate or Herod was amazed. And he says, why aren't you saying anything? Don't you understand 
that I have power, that I'm greater than you and Jesus. The only thing he said was, you couldn't have any power at all unless it was delivered to you. Therefore, those that have brought me to you have the greater sin. Man, Jesus could have refuted every argument. He could have proved his innocence. He could have gotten out of this. And yet, because of his love, he yielded and he suffered for us. That's awesome. In verse... um, Eight, it says he was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation? Talking about he never had children. For those of you who think that the Da Vinci Code is real, (laughs) here's scripture that Jesus didn't have children. He didn't marry Mary Magdalene. All of that is an attempt to de-deify Jesus, to bring him down to a human level. Jesus was God in the flesh. He didn't have sexual relations with Mary Magdalene. He didn't have children. All of that's a lie and shame on you for even thinking about it. Going to see it and paying that guy for his lies. It says, Who shall declare his generation? For he was taken out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence... Neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. You know, this is an amazing fact. It pleased God the Father to bruise him. And this word literally just means to pulverize, to crush. It didn't please him in the sense that he enjoyed it, that he liked it. But God knew that this was the only way that he could ever have relationship with you and with me. And because of his great love for us... It pleased him to sacrifice his son in order to be able to get us. That's amazing. You know what that does? That places so much worth and value on us. Not because we deserve it, because we've lived holy, but just the fact that God Almighty loves you as much as he loved his son places a tremendous worth on your life. A tremendous value. If you were to meditate on all of these things that we're talking about, you know what, this would just, man, this would make you love God. It would make you feel so thankful, so privileged, so blessed. It would be impossible for you to be depressed thinking on these things. If you're depressed, it's because you're thinking about yourself and what you don't have and you aren't thinking about what you do have in God. You aren't thinking about God's great love for you. You're thinking about somebody else's rejection. You're the one that makes yourself depressed. I had a man come to me and he says, I'm manic depressive. Would you please pray for me? My emotions just are broken. They don't work. And I said, there's nothing wrong with your emotions. And he says, didn't you hear me? I'm manic depressive. I'm schizophrenic. I've got multiple personalities. I said, there's nothing wrong with your emotions. He said, how could you say that? And I said, your emotions work perfectly. If you think on negative things, on every rotten thing that happened, you get depressed. And I just began to tell him. I said, here's how you think. And I began to tell him what he did when he got up in the morning and how he began to just start thinking and how he saw the negative side, how he was pessimistic. He says, that's all exactly true. How did you know it? I said, because of the way your emotions are. There's nothing wrong with your emotions. There's not anything wrong with anybody's emotions in here. It's not your chemical imbalance. It's the way you think that causes you to be depressed. If you would think on these things, the Bible says in Isaiah 26, 3, the Lord will keep him in perfect peace, 
whose mind is stayed upon him because he trusts in him. If you aren't in perfect peace, it's not because of your chemicals, because of your hormones. It's because your mind isn't stayed on God. It's because you aren't thinking on the truth. You've believed a lie. You are focused on negative things instead of focused on the truth. Was that too subtle? Anybody miss that? I know many of you are mad because what I'm doing is taking away your defenses and saying it's your fault. You're saying it's my fault. That's exactly what I'm saying, amen. Well, that condemns me. Well, it ought to bless you to find out that you're the problem instead of God just up there created you a basket case and you're a dud and there's nothing you can do about it. Man, it's a blessing to find out that if you'll start thinking on the good things, if you will meditate on these scriptures, you'll be healed. You'll be delivered. You'll be set free. It says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief so that you wouldn't ever have to grieve. Grieving is dishonoring the Lord. It's not esteeming what Jesus has done for you. It's esteeming your problem. It says, He put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, talking about Jesus, and shall be satisfied. You know what this is saying is? That God looks at Jesus' suffering and that satisfied Him. He doesn't look at your suffering. He doesn't punish you. It's not you bearing it. You know, if you're like me, like most people, when you do something wrong, in a sense, you feel like you've got to pay God back. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. And so you go study the Word and pray extra, trying to make up trying to appease for it. We barter with God. God, if you'll, if you'll heal me, I promise you, I'll start doing this. I'll pay you back. It's like you take somebody out to eat and you fight over the check and finally you get it and they say, well, I'm buying next time. You have this sense of justice. You can't be beholden to anybody. You got to pay your way. And so we sit there, oh God, I'll try and make up because you failed so big time. And so you'll cut off the TV and pray for an extra hour and study the Word a little bit extra until you feel like you've done something to justify God moving in your life. Man, that, that insults God. God saw the travail of His soul. You know, in the Old Testament, when they brought a sacrifice to God, it had to be a lamb without blemish. If there was any spot in it, if there was the slightest imperfection in that lamb, you couldn't offer it as a sacrifice. The sacrifice had to be perfect. And so when you came before the priest and you held out the lamb, the priest would examine that lamb to see if it was perfect before it would sacrifice. Here's the point. The priest didn't examine the person bringing the sacrifice. He didn't look to see if you were clean And if you were without blemish, as a matter of fact, the very fact that you were bringing a sacrifice showed that you had blemish, that you had problems. And yet they didn't ask you, have you been living holy? Did you pray? Did you study the word? Have you gone to church? Have you paid your tithes? The priest didn't examine the person making the sacrifice. They examined the sacrifice. And they saw the sacrifice. And they were pleased with the sacrifice. 
But basically religion has told us, no, it's not all about Jesus. You've got to be holy and God's looking at you. Are you doing this right? Are you doing that right? And if you aren't doing all of these things, God won't accept you. God won't answer your prayer. God won't move in your life. And religion has got us to where we're constantly examining ourselves, whether we are perfect and whether we're holy. But man, what I'm trying to get across is God sees the travail of His soul. God looks at the sacrifice and you've had a perfect sacrifice made for you and therefore you are accepted in the Beloved on the basis of what Jesus did for you, not what you do for Jesus. If you can understand what I'm saying right here, transform your life. It would transform your life. The only thing that Satan ever had on you is sin. That's what, that's what the inroad is. That's his landing zone. That's his beachhead in your life is the fact that you've sinned and your conscience condemns you and makes you know that you deserve for God to reject you. You deserve to be uh, disfellowshipped and not healed and stuff. You, don't have, you aren't worthy and your own conscience condemns you. Once you understand that it's not about you, it's about that sacrifice that was made for you. And regardless how sorry you've been, your sacrifice is perfect. Once you understand that, Satan can't corner you. Satan can't, he can't get an inroad into your life. You're like Teflon. Nothing sticks. <laughs> he can throw accusations at you and you say, oh, it's true. Man, I'm a jerk. But thank God for Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Man, what a blessing. You know, I've got to, I'm not through, but I'm just going to have to stop. The heart can't absorb more than the seat can endure. So I'm not through, I'm just stopping and we'll continue this in the morning. But man, you need to just keep going through all of these scriptures. There's much, much more to share here. You need to understand the tremendous price, like we started in that verse in chapter 52 that He has redeemed us. We are redeemed. There was a huge price paid. You know the word redeemed has in the definition the paying of a ransom. Through sin, Satan captivated us. And he had all of us, the entire human race, and each one of us individually in his grasp. And he demanded a ransom and Jesus paid it. Paid a greater ransom than what the... What, what the devil demanded. He paid a greater price than what the need was. And you know what? You've been redeemed. And we just need to understand this. If you could understand it, it would open up healing to you. The only reason that people don't get healed, it may not be obvious, but it really comes down to the fact that we believe God can do it. We just aren't sure that we're worthy. God, have I done enough? And we're, we aren't zealous. We aren't adamant about it because we aren't absolutely convinced that God loves us enough to do it. If you could understand the things we've talked about, I guarantee you, you'd understand God's love is so great for you that if He died for you, if He went through all of this for you, I guarantee you He wants to heal you. He wants you to be absolutely well, and your faith would shoot through the roof, and you would get up and see miracles happen. You would be delivered from your depression if you thought about how much God loves you. Man, you would begin to prosper. You would do things. You're... Everything in your life would totally transform. 
As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The reason our life is substandard is because our revelation and our thinking is substandard. You begin to start thinking according to the Word of God, and the Word of God will just literally transform your life. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you've understood how important what I've said here tonight is, but if you could get these things, you would never be the same. If you could meditate on this, you know, if somebody's sitting here tonight and saying, well, I heard all of this, but you know what? I need more. I, I just don't think this is the message that I needed. I need something else. You ought to get the tape and listen to it again because what you need was in here. I guarantee you, this, if this doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet. <laughs> Something's wrong with you. You need this, amen. We all need to understand God's great love for us. This will just transform your life. Man, if this doesn't just make you want to love God more and to get in and study the Word, you missed something here tonight. You need to go back and let God speak to you because I can guarantee you this will change your life. Whatever your need is, this is the answer. Isn't that good? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Let me ask if there's anybody here tonight.